Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound Radio Show, your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful, and occasionally wearying world of mixed martial arts. I'm Robert Winfrey. I am your host for this show. I'll give everyone your fair warning right now. I am on my own tonight. Uh, Both Pat and Jeff informed me beforehand that they were scheduling conflicts. Uh, They'll... Uh, I believe they'll both be back next week, to the best of my knowledge, again, barring the unforeseen. So you've just got me for this one. Uh, I can almost hear you all clicking away from the (laughs) feed, but uh, such is life at the moment. Tonight, uh, I'm going to try to get through this relatively quickly. We will be reviewing Fight Night 121. Oh, boy. Fight Night 121. The longest event in UFC history. There were three hours, four minutes, and uh, 21 seconds, give or take, of in-cage fighting over a, I believe, literal seven-hour broadcast from first prelim on Fight Pass to the conclusion of the main event. Seven hours. Ugh. I, I have words. I have so many words about that, but I will save that for a bit. I will also be looking ahead to Fight Night 122, where Michael Bisping escapes his medical suspension by competing in a in a part of the world outside the jurisdiction of the American Boxing Commissions. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure there's a degree of medical oversight that he's going to have to pass to make that happen, but the real reason, like he's, I mean, it's really not an issue for him to compete in China after he got bludgeoned and stopped by George St. Pierre. The American boxing commissions have no jurisdiction over combat sports in China. The UFC is self-regulating, so they can kind of just ignore medical suspensions and things of that nature. Uh, There were also some fights made, some fights rumored to be being made. Uh, In fact, a light heavyweight title contender just got arrested earlier today in Florida. For uh, aggravated battery, I believe. Oh, that poor division. One new guy in like three years. And hey, here's Vulcan Uzdemir. He's kind of exciting. He's knocking people out. Yep, now he's been arrested. Uh, I will also share my very, very, like, the very, what I call MMA, just a, a sport full of insanity. 
some of that's institutional. Some of that is just, you know, the way things go. Like, there's randomness, guys get injured, crazy things happen in the cage. That happens. There's also the part of MMA that is insane in that, you know, Fabricio Verdum hits Colby Covington in the face with a boomerang. Because that actually happened. Like, (laughs) this sport is nuts. It's sad and hilarious at the same time. So I'll touch a little bit on that. Again, some of the fights that got made, some of them that are in the process of being made, and, you know, I've had news broke about them, so on and so forth. If you would like to break up the monotony of me talking to myself, I am more than happy to take live callers at 323-657-0901. If you would rather send questions or comments via other forms on the internet, I... I'm happy to take tweets. You can find me at WinFreeMMA. And you can leave comments on the post on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network Facebook page where the Blog Talk Radio player is embedded. I will be keeping track of all of that. Feel free to you know, interact that way if that's how you prefer. All right. Let's get into this. Last night. Oi. UFC Fight Night 121. Let me start with this before I get into the actual action because there were some uh, there were some decent fights. You know, I, I, I want to preface this like sometimes you have fights that are just the worst, and there were some bad fights last night. There were some pretty good fights last night. The totality of the horrible viewing experience surrounding UFC Fight Night 121 is not entirely on the quality of action. Some of it is, some of it isn't. Luke Thomas has talked about this in the past, and I generally feel he's correct in this assumption, in this assessment. UFC events on Fox Sports 1 are designed to be as long as is reasonable, because the longer an event goes, the more ad share time you can sell. And if you can overrun beyond your live allotment of time, that actually plays in your favor, as long as you're not you know, stupid about it. Because you have people potentially tuning in for the follow-up program that will just watch the last three to five minutes of whatever program was on before it, if there's some overrun, especially if it's a live sporting event, or any kind of live event. Uh, Monday Night Raw used to do this all the time. Their main event segment would frequently run five minutes or so over the hour. This was designed to get more people watching as they were tune- as other people were tuning in for whatever happened to follow Raw. It's a way of, I hate to say artificially inflating your ratings numbers, but it, because no one's intentionally tuning into the program, but they are watching it. So there's again, there's some inflation of numbers. And Fox Sports One and the UFC have a relationship where they drag these things out. I've mentioned this before on this show. The average runtime for a UFC event from first prelim to main event, pretty much regardless of that. Now, this differs slightly if we're strictly on fight pass, but generally it's six hours. Just as a general rule, you have a six hour broadcast from first prelim to the sign off after the main event. And that gets exact. 
it's again, it's exacerbated a bit by Fox Sports One because they want commercials to sell, you know, to sell ad space. I get it. Like I understand how the how we got to this position. And I mentioned that that's a problem, but I have to sit through this crap. And I am somewhat, I won't say immune to it, but I am somewhat numbed to the pacing and the, mostly the pacing of these events on Fox Sports 1. Like, I know it's going to be long. I know there's going to be extended commercial breaks. I just, especially if you get like a tough finale show, those are just some of the some of the tough shows, like apart from this one, some of those tough finales are just the worst in terms of pacing, the just the dirt worst. But I stopped really complaining about it because again, there's no there's nothing I can do. Like there, no amount of complaining is really going to fix this problem. But I feel it's important to note it for the record. So when someone like me who sits in front of you know. I watch it on my computer. So I sit in front of my screen for six hours every Saturday, pretty much, to cover these things. When even someone who is, you know, somewhat numbed to the entire process of, hey, here's a six-hour broadcast with a million commercials, when even I'm going, good Lord in heaven, this event is dragging. It's bad. Like, the, again, the average viewer might not notice or they can take breaks in between, but when someone who's just like become numb to a six-hour ordeal, a six-hour broadcast, goes, yeah, this one, this one drug. That's how you know it's bad. Uh, this, was, this event was seven hours from start to finish. It started at 4.30 p.m. my time, and it wrapped up at like 11.27 my time. I mean, if you're on the East Coast, that's like, 1.30 in the morning. And I don't think anyone was staying up late to watch Vertum versus Tabora. Now, again, some of this is beyond the control of all parties. We had, again, the lo- again this is the longest event in UFC history. Oh, excuse me, it was three hours, four minutes, and 18 seconds of fight time in, t- uh, in cage events, in cage fighting. Longest in UFC history. It also tied... Uh, the record, there are now four events with ten decisions on a single card. There were 13 fights at UFC fight at this event, and three of them ended via some form of stoppage. All three of them on the Fox Sports 1 prelims, actually. Now, you can't control that. Like, I'm not mad at anybody for the amount of decisions, because there were some good fights that that went the distance. I'm certainly not going to complain about all the action. There were some good fights. I don't feel it would be fair to complain about them indiscriminately. But you can't again, you can't control that. Like sometimes fights just go the distance. What you can control is event pacing. Like there's there were production decisions that the UFC made around this card that took what would have already been a long event and made it feel longer. For one thing, I believe every winner got an interview. Um, I would really have to double-check my notes on this. But certainly everything after we got off of Fight Pass, and I believe everyone on Fight Pass, uh, they got an interview. interview. 
I can't uh, – somebody else brought this up, and I like the statistic. The first five fights on Fox Sports 1, uh, there were the four preliminary bouts that included the three finishes, and then the first bout on the main card. In those five fights, there were 21 commercial breaks. Now, some of that is you get commercial breaks between rounds. That's fair. I mean, again, I, I understand that, and I, I'm used to that. That's not a big deal. But even at that, that's a lot of commercials. I can't tell you how many times the following sequence would take place. Um, fight would end. Yeah, and Most often in this instance, go the distance. Go to commercial break. Come back for the reading of the decision. This is normal. Decision is read. Interview the winner, which takes time. Instead of cutting interviews, which could have saved some of the overall runtime, we interview the winner. We go to commercial break. We come back from commercial break. We get a three-minute hype piece for the next fight. I could complain about those being generic, but they've been generic for, like, decades. So... Again, it's just how it's, it's just how it goes. You come back, and you get a bit of video and some voiceover narration. And coming up next, we've got Fighter A versus Fighter B. Then we go to commercial break again, and then we come back to the action. There's a whole set of commercials in there that you could theoretically cut out. There were just production decisions that extended this whole thing. This was an absolute slog to sit through. Some of that's on the fights because, again, there were some bad fights. Some of that is on the UFC's production decisions and the way they timed this out with Fox Sports 1. And we just got a really, really unfortunate confluence of those two things that made this in, that made sitting through this card one of the most arduous things I've ever done covering MMA. I think the only card that felt this long, and it wasn't actually as long, but there was a tough finale, and I believe the main event was Nate Diaz versus Gray Maynard. They sold it as their trilogy fight. It was their second fight in the UFC. Now, I gave that credit a bit that card a bit of a reprieve because they lost in their main event um less than a week out. Like maybe a week out. The original main event uh wound up falling through. I forget the total I forget all the circumstances. But I remember watching that card and it was dragging and it was because they lost, you know, 40 minutes of airtime for a five-round main event that just evaporated. So they had to stretch it. And I understood. I didn't like it, but I understood. And I mentioned during my coverage of that that, boy, this event feels long, and I got some crap for it. And to be fair, I probably mentioned it enough to be annoying to anyone who was just reading and following along. So I've amended that. Do not complain about it all the time, but if I feel an event's dragging, I will note it. Last night was a serious drag. If you have this event DVR'd and want to watch it, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to go through the fights, but be ready to fast forward a lot through a lot of downtime. Uh, this event also might have set a record for most instances of fighters missing weight. 
There were four of them. There were four fighters last night who missed weight. I'd really have to go through you know, the records as far as UFC goes to find out if there was an instance where five fighters missed weight. But this was, yeah, four's a lot. A couple of those were late notice. I know the co-main event and I believe our featured fight pass prelim were both uh, very late notice. Uh, one of them was late. There was actually there was actually a catchweight bout uh, that was scheduled as one because one of the fighters' opponents uh, pulled out. He had like three opponent changes. Felt so bad for that guy. And they just agreed to 150 pound catchweight, and they both weighed in at like 147. I mean, they're both featherweights, but because it was short notice, they just agreed that we'll make it for 150 and make everyone's life easier. Um, so a couple of dubious notations around this event, but okay. So with my discussion about the production elements and why this thing was dragging so much out of the way, let's get to the actual fights in your main event. Fabricio Verdum defeats Marcin Tabora via unanimous decision. 50, 45, 50, 45, 49, 46. I believe I was 49, 46. I think I gave Tabora the last round. Uh, Tabor had a pretty good second round, too. I think Verdum won that round, but the second round was uh, a close one as well. Ugh. I really wish this fight... Like, this wasn't a great fight, let me be clear. This was a good fight, especially for heavyweights, especially for a five-round heavyweight fight. It was... Neither guy gassed out to the point where they were bent over sucking wind. Both guys were pretty active throughout the whole fight, like... There's some heavyweight fights that if they go five rounds, you just know we get out of the third, we get into the third in some cases, and they're going to be sucking wind, they're going to be bent over, breathing heavy, there's going to be no technique, it's just like, that's the nature of heavyweights. Both of these guys, they got tired as it went on, but it was a five-round fight, so some of that's understandable. They both had okay cardio. They both kept a decent pace. They were both doing things the whole... I'm not overly complaining about that. But I think a lot of people were just so done with this whole event by the time those two started to fight that there was no hope for this to be well-received unless it was a very quick finish. Uh, As for the action... Verdum's just was just a level above Tabora pretty much everywhere. He was more active with his strikes. He was generally more aggressive with them. He was you know, obviously the superior grappler. He's the best grappler in that whole division by a significant margin. And he was just able to outwork and outthink Tabora over the whole five rounds. Taken in isolation, it's it's not a bad heavyweight fight. It's not great or memorable, but it could have been a lot worse, and I'm glad that it wasn't. Um, Verdum still wants to get into title contention. Stipe Miocic is still waiting and negotiating with the UFC about his fight contract. Because Stipe ain't happy, but guys... Um, I don't think he beat Stipe anyway, but... 
again, the whole circumstance is just weird, and you've got Overeem and Ganu who are about to fight at uh, 218. Yeah, I think it's 218. Yeah, it's Holloway and Aldo, too. That's got in, uh, Overeem and Ganu. So there's there's still some obstacles to him getting another shot at the belt, but I imagine he will get it unless something weird happens, like he goes to jail for hitting... Jeez, that guy's name just completely escaped me. Covington. Yeah. Unless he actually like has a lot of legal trouble resulting from smacking Colby Covington in the face with a boomerang. Not a joke. Like for those of you who haven't seen this, that actually happened. He took objection to some of Covington's statements about Brazil and kind of Covington's existence, which is perfectly understandable. Colby Covington is a boil on the ass of life. They got into it outside of a hotel, and some fans had given him, some Australian fans had given Verdum a boomerang as, you know, a gift, as a commemorative thing. And he actually threw it and hit Colby Covington on the side of the head with it. Like, what is this sport? It just doesn't make sense. But So, a really solid very clinical performance from Verdum. Um, again, not the worst fight on the card, not the best, but it was just doomed to die a slow death after the rest of this card. Uh, all right, I don't think to. I don't know what Verdum does next. Again, we're probably looking at Overeem versus Nganu, the winner of that being the next title challenger. But Verdum's certainly there, and someone could get injured, or the UFC could decide to put on an interim title fight if they and Stipe keep butting heads, so who knows. Uh, Tabora, this he's still a relatively young guy. I imagine he'll have a decent career. Like I don't think he's going to fall apart after this. Um, all right, your co-main event. Jeez. Uh, Jessica Rose Clark defeated Beck Rawlings via split decision. Oh boy, how do I how do I describe this fight? Um first of all, whoever scored this fight for Rawlings just like I question your intelligence. I actually gave uh Clark all three rounds. Probably uh, which the third round could have gone to Rawlings. But Rawlings, just like the whole first round, which was apparently the other round that this judge gave her, she just was coming forward throwing and was either missing or being blocked and eating counter strikes. Like, aggression is only, is only a scorable criteria and is in as much as it is effective. And I seriously question her efficacy in that round. She kept running into a wood chipper. Um, look, Rawlings is just not that good. Uh, Clark Clark missed weight for this bout, but again, it was kind of short notice. Um, yeah, geez. Uh, she was replaced on the 7th, give or take, so 10 days notice-ish. Uh, again, she missed weight. I want to see what she'll do with a full training camp, but it, again, it wasn't a terrible fight, but it was a relatively low-level affair. 
Um, Bilal Muhammad defeated Tim Means via split decision, 29-28 for Means, and then two 29-28s for Muhammad. This was probably the best fight on the main card. Uh, these two went after it. Uh, Muhammad had a good first round where he was landing the more the higher quality of shots. Uh, Means was very Means was landing a higher volume, but he wasn't having as much of an effect. The second round, Means made a couple of adjustments, especially with his range, and was able to avoid most of Muhammad's offerings. Outlanded him, outworked him, won the second, and then the third was. I think the third is the uh, is the round in dispute here because they both had very great moments. Like they just kind of beat beat each other up for a bit. I thought Muhammad's overall quality of offense was better in the third round. That's why I went the way I did. But these two had a, again just a good little welterweight kind of scrap. I mean, there's nothing terribly interesting, but again, probably the best fight on the main card. In terms of entertainment value. Uh, Muhammad called out Colby Covington, which is an utter waste of time. Just ignore him. And quit paying attention to people like that. That's how you get them to go away. Uh, plus, I think he'd lose that fight badly. Like, uh, uh, this needs to be brought up with, as it relates to Colby Covington. His stri- I mentioned it. His striking is just like, it, just, it sucks. It's just not good. And because he spent three rounds striking with Damian Maya, everybody now seems to think they can beat him. You really have to be able to stop his wrestling or provide an active deterrent like being a jiu-jitsu practitioner, the level of Damian Maya, to stop him from just smother-humping you. For some reason, everyone seems to have forgotten that. Uh, I don't... I, again, like I don't know where either of these guys goes from here, but, you know, a good fight. Um, Jake Matthews defeated Boyan Velichkovic via split decision. Uh, 129-28 for Velichkovic, 229-28 for Matthews. Eh, not a lot here. Uh, that first round could have been a draw. Straight up, that first round could have been 10-10. Just so little happened. It was so much time with Matthews just pushing Velichkovic into the fence, bent over looking for takedowns that never really materialized. Uh, the second round, Matthews gassed a little. Velichkovic beat him up on the feet, had his back for a bit. Uh, the third round was a little more back and forth. It was, again, like, when I looked at this card and said, you know, there's just not a whole lot here of interest on paper, that kind of was how it played out. Um, your worst fight of the night. This is the worst fight. Kasim uh, and Chambers at least had some reliable action. Yeah, worst fight of the night. Elias Theodoru defeats Dan Kelly via unanimous decision. 30-28, 30-27, This fight sucked. Um, Elias Theodoru has a decent kicking game. And he's a decent clinch breaker, but he relies on being able to gas his opponents out when his gas tank isn't actually all that great. And he just, I really, like, when he debuted uh, winning the Ultimate Fighter, there was some hype around him. Not for me, 
but there was some, and he had a good winning streak going, but he's never really adapted his game. He's never really improved. He's just kind of treading water. And, again, he's got a decent kicking game, but so much else is just kind of pedestrian, just really pedestrian. I think he's, he might have peaked. Sorry, peaked is the wrong expression. We might have seen his ceiling. This might be as good as he's ever going to get. And that's good enough to have bad fights and win decisions against the Dan Kellys of the world. But anytime he runs into somebody halfway decent, halfway decent, uh, you run into somebody who knows what they're doing, like Tiago Santos or Brad Tavares, they're going to beat him. And they're and it's not going to be that close. Neither of those fights, neither the Santos nor the Tavares bout, were all that close. They were clearly wins for Santos and Tavares. Um, I got a I got a minor kick out of him mentioning that he was going to you know squash his beef with Kelly at the end simply because he's very Canadian and doesn't want to hold on to the grudge. Um, but again, just not a very good fight. Um, the other I felt kind of interesting fight from the main card: Alexander Volkanovsky defeated Shane Young via unanimous decision, thirty twenty seven, thirty twenty six, thirty twenty six. Shane Young took this fight on short notice. This was supposed to be Volkanovski and Jeremy Kennedy, which is actually a really, well, again, Volkanovski was originally scheduled to fight Jeremy Kennedy. Kennedy withdrew in early October with a back injury, which sucks. And I was actually, that's actually a good fight. Um, Kennedy's young, uh, got some serious talent, but Volkanovski's a real bruiser. Like, that's a really decent test for both guys at that level. After Kennedy withdrew, he was replaced by Umberto Bandene, who I believe has pulled out... Sorry, he did pull out of the fight, but I believe he has fought in the UFC before. Um, Bandene pulled out in the fight very early November um, and was replaced by Shane Young again on like 10 days' notice. Um, Volkanovski's got a good game. He's a very smothering presence. He's got Good, not great, but good takedowns. His top control is very solid, and he puts some heat on his blows. Um, I'd really like to see him actually fight someone, you know, not top 15. I don't think that's called for just yet, but I'd like to see him fight somebody so we can really see what he's got going. You know, I, I really do want to see what he's capable of against a higher echelon of talent than he's currently fighting. Uh, on the prelims, Ryan Benoit defeated Ashkin Mokhtarian via knockout. Uh, this was a head kick in the third round. This was a weird fight. Mokhtarian was doing a lot of movement that wasn't setting up a whole lot. Uh, he landed a couple of good punches on Benoit, especially in the first round. Uh, Benoit broke his hand in the first round. He made some adjustments, used his left a little bit more, and... He just kind of baited Mokhtarian in the finish into... Uh, they traded power hand punches. And when they came back in, uh, Benoit threw a head kick and Mokhtarian was kind of ducking, not into it at an angle, but forward. 
and kind of with his hands down. I think he might have thought the kick was coming lower, and Shin met the side of his head, and he was done. Um, Benoit missed weight. He actually talked after this about potentially moving up to bantamweight. He's a small flyweight. I really don't know how that would go for him. But if you can't make the weight safely and consistently, you can't make the weight safely and consistently, and that's just the reality you have to live with. Um, Nick Lentz defeated Will Brooks with a guillotine choke in the second round. I really don't know what happened to Will Brooks. I think he declared victory when he signed with the UFC. And he uh, they talked about this a little bit on commentary, and I feel the way he has performed, this is borne out a little bit. His goal was to get to the UFC, not to really, not necessarily to really succeed in the UFC. Um, he had some good stuff in this fight. He had a really sharp jab. He had some good upper body movement. He was, uh, he was doing a good job of, you know, marking up Lentz's face. But Nick Lentz, Nick Lentz has the UFC record for most guillotine attempts in the promotion's history. It's a low sub, it's a low percentage submission to begin with. And he went for it in the first like I jokingly like put out on Twitter that I set the over under at guillotine attempts from Lens for this fight at 6. Cuz he just goes for them all the time to his detriment in some respects. He constantly will give up positions to really sell out for that. And good fighters have made him pay for it. Brooks escaped the uh the attempt in the first round. In the second, uh, he hit this, I don't know what to call it. I, uh, forgive me, my wrestling terminology is lacking. But he uh, he kind of angled off of a combination, or he ducked a punch from Lentz. I can't remember which one. And he got on Lentz's hip at an angle. They were like perpendicular, uh, facing you know 90 degrees away from each other. He wraps the body. He steps behind to trip Lentz. And he completes the takedown, but he leaves his head on the same side as the rest of his body. In this case, this is Lentz's left side. If you're executing a takedown like that or a double leg, same kind of thing, against someone with a really good guillotine, you have to keep your head kind of in the center of their body. You, you don't want it off to the side like that because they will wrap it up. And if you do put it off to the side, you want it to be on the opposite side from your hips. Because then you can kind of pass to that, because then you can either get to half guard or side control on the safer side and alleviate the choking pressure. He didn't do either of those. He kept his head on the same side, so he couldn't, even if he was like had dropped into side control, he's on the same side as the choking arm, so it's not safe. Like you can still be choked like that. Um, if you want a practical example, uh, the Frank Mir and Czech Congo fight. Congo passes to full-on side control on Mir as Mir's holding the guillotine, but it's on the same side that he's being choked on, so it's just... It's still a choke. Like he, His neck is still being compressed. And... Anyway, Brooks decided to go towards guard, towards half guard but he's still in danger of being choked. And then he tried the same escape he did in the first round, which was kind of flipping his hips over the top in a somersault, which is a fine escape, but if your opponent knows it's coming, they'll roll with it, which is what Lentz did. Lentz rolled through. He got into full mount, holding the guillotine, 
forced the submission. Um, yeah, Brooks. I really don't know yeah, what to say about him. His he had a great run in Bellator, and he, I had some high hopes for him when he debuted in the UFC. But for some reason, he just hasn't had it. And I mean, some of it was you know weird, like again losing to uh, Alex Oliveira after Oliveira missed weight, and you know then he suffered the in cage injury that directly played into the finish. Like you know, randomness happens. Then you don't really fight back control from a guy like Charles Oliveira, and now you're just kind of giving your neck to Nick Lentz. Like, I really don't know what he's got to do to turn things around, but he's going to find himself back in Bellator sooner rather than later. Possibly. I mean, his his departure from there was very acrimonious. Um, Ty Tuivasa defeated Rashad Coulter via knockout, flying knee at 435 of the first round. This was low-level heavyweight stuff, but Tuivasa landed a good leg kick that actually took the legs out from under Coulter. Coulter got up against the fence, and Tuivasa just threw a flying knee, landed straight on his chin, and he was out. Um, Look, I'm not going to anoint Tuivasa a a legitimate prospect at heavyweight or anything, but heavyweight needs all the talent it can get, and Tuivasa might be worth keeping. Again, he one brutally here, so he's clearly worth keeping around to some respect. Oh, excuse me. But he might act, you know, legitimately be worth keeping around. Um, your best fight of the night, Frank Camacho and Damian Brown. Uh, Camacho wins a split decision. There was one 29-28 for Brown, one thirty twenty-seven for Camacho, which was odd, and a 29-28 for Camacho. Um, these two had no footwork, (laughs) they had very little movement, but boy, were they completely content to stand in front of each other and punch each other in the face. Um, and I like that sort of thing. So, you know, this was just crowd entertainment and it was a, it was entertaining. You know, that's really all that can be said on, oh, uh, Camacho. Our third instance, going down the card this week, Frank Camacho missed weight and missed out on his $50,000 fight of the night bonus. Make weight, buddy. You are $50,000 poorer because you mistimed your weight cut. Sucks to be you. Uh, I do want to say, though, he apparently took to Twitter in the wake of this and said, give my share of the the fight of the night bonus to uh, Damian Brown. So Brown would get would theoretically have gotten a hundred thousand for the fight. Uh, I, I do want to say you know that that's a that's a classy move by Camacho and you know, make weight next time, buddy. But petitioning for the guy you went in there and engaged in a fifteen minute war with to get your half of the, your portion of that money, I don't think the UFC will do it because they're not going to just give away fifty thousand dollars if they don't have to. But I appreciate the sentiment that he put forth and the fact that he put forth that effort. So thanks for that. Good on you. Um, On fight pass, Nadia Kassam defeated Alex Chambers, the unanimous decision, 29-28, 29-27, Kassam missed weight. This is our final instance of this. Um, This was low-level women's MMA. uh, Kassam had some... I don't know. I mean, like, again, watch the fight if you're so inclined. Like, I, I don't have a whole lot to say about this one. 
Um, Eric Shelton defeated Janelle Lousa via unanimous decision, 30-27, 30-26, and 30-25. Uh, Shelton finally, his both of his UFC fights prior to this were split decision losses that were very closely contested. As to see him finally get on the winning side of things, he's a decent prospect for the division. And kicking everything off, you should have known we were in for a long night, guys, when it started like this. Um, Adam Vicharek, which I believe is how that's pronounced. That's how they were pronouncing it on commentary. I'm going with that. Defeated Anthony Hamilton via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. When your opener at heavyweight featuring a guy with the chin of Anthony Hamilton goes all three rounds, that's the universe trying to warn you of something. Uh, All right. Again, that was a real slog. Thanks to everyone who stuck with me through that, uh, doing live coverage. I know there were a few of you. Um, God bless you for it. Uh, thanks to everyone who read After the Fact. Thank you to the commenter on my report who pointed out that I got the winner of the <laughs> uh, Lentz and Will Brooks fight completely backwards. I had actually listed Will Brooks as the winner. Uh, thank you for pointing that out. I Look, I'm claiming that as it was happening, I, it was already kind of a long night and I wasn't paying as much attention as I should have. And by the time I submitted the final thing, I was just so done. I didn't proofread properly. So that's on me. It's my name on the byline. Yeah, my name's attached to this. Begins and ends with me. So I apologize for that. Thank you to the commenter for pointing that out. That Otherwise, that would have just gone. I don't think I would have noticed. I genuinely don't. So thank you for that. That is much appreciated. I'm always happy to, you know, correct my mistakes and freely acknowledge them when they, when I make them. So thank you. All right. Ugh. I say ugh for this next card because, well, A, it doesn't look all that great. And B, it's starting at uh, some unholy hour early in the morning. Uh, I believe the main card, this is all on Fight Pass next week. Fight Night 122 is all on Fight Pass I believe the main card starts at 5 or 5.30 my time, a.m. Because they're doing this, uh, you know, prime time when they're prime time in mainland China. There are rules and laws in China about curfews and so on and so forth. So they're doing it in accordance with the laws of the land where they are uh, holding the event, which is what you're supposed to do. It just means that the first prelim is going to start at something like... 1.30? Probably 2.30. Just to be like the most annoying timing in the world. Like Somewhere between like 2 and 3 is just the worst. It's just the worst. So I imagine most of you will not be following along live. <laughs> but uh, coverage of this one next week, so let's go ahead and jump into this. In your main event, Michael Bisbing is fighting Kelvin Gastelum. Now, I mentioned earlier that Bisbing lost to George St. Pierre. He received a 30-day medical suspension from the New York State Athletic Commission in the wake of that fight because he got dropped badly with a left hook. He got elbowed 15 times in the head by GSP before giving his back up and being choked out. Like he took there was this wasn't just a submission. He got bludgeoned. 
But as also previously mentioned, well, there's a couple of things. One, those suspensions, I think even the 30-day one can be circumvented with a you know, pending a doctor's approval. It also might not. There might just be a hard rule in place for only a 30-day suspension that, no, you, you're on you know, no contact or you can't fight or whatever. But there is no commission in China, no athletic commission for the regulation of this. The UFC will be self-regulating. And because they are not beholden to a governing body, the Michael Bisbing and the UFC are free to ignore the suspension. Uh, which I believe is what's going on. Uh, I don't like it. I don't like. I didn't like it when this fight was made. But uh, as far as predicting the, how the fight goes, if you again, like, feel free to listen to last week's show when I talked about that. It's like why I wasn't happy with it. Because if we're going to enjoy men engaging in physical combat that causes long-term damage to their health for our enjoyment, there are regulations and things in place that have to make that ethical and palatable. And reasonable medical suspensions are part of that, I believe. And the fact that they're just completely ignoring this one, um, it doesn't sit well with me. That's, that's all I'm saying. Uh, oh, I have a question via Facebook here from an occasional contributor and a friend of mine, Andrew Graham. Wants to know if I consider GSP versus Bisbing to be a late stoppage. I didn't think so at the time. I mean, Bisbing goes out and the ref stops it. Like, Bisbing chose not to tap to the choke. The referee stopped it as soon as, like, within a very reasonable timetable after Bisbing went out. So, no, I don't really think it'd be, I wouldn't consider it late. I also wouldn't consider the, you know, attacks that Bisbing, that GSP landed with elbows to be of a truly fight-stopping nature, just in the sense that uh, GSP was in Bisbing's full guard, which shouldn't play a huge role, but is a somewhat determining factor. And Bisbing was still, he was still trying to move. Like he was, he was still to the best of what I can recall of the fight. He was still intelligently defending himself and GSP intelligently rather than just wear himself out punching and letting Bisbing recover or, you know, after that stalled out, uh, let him sit up so he could get his back and choke him out. But yeah, that's just my recollection of it. I'll have to double check because I don't, I don't think at the time I thought it was late. It was, it was close. But Bisbing started fighting for posture control around the time I thought, okay, he's really got to do something, and then he started doing something. So, just my perspective on that. So, thanks, Andrew. Uh, happy to you know, help as much as I can as far as that goes. Um, as for this fight. I really like Kelvin Gastelum's chances here. Um, <laughs> Kelvin has very fast hands. It's a, it's a constantly underappreciated element of his game. He's got decent power. He's not, you know, like Ant- I keep saying Anthony Johnson as a point of reference for this. He's not a necessarily one punch will end you. But he's got very fast hands, and he has good power. And if you can combine 
accurate punching, which he also has. He's a he's an accurate puncher. With fast hands and good power, you're going to find a lot of success striking, and he has. He not I mean, he dropped Chris Weidman pretty hard at the end of the first round of their fight. I mean, if that same knockdown happens with 15 seconds left to go or 10 seconds instead of right when it did, there's a real chance he would have finished Chris Weidman. The, re, the primary, I hate to say it this way because it somewhat diminishes what Weidman did, but Weidman beat Gastelum by forcing him to wrestle, and Kelvin's a good wrestler, but Weidman is a good wrestler as well, and Weidman was significantly larger. Now, Weidman didn't win the fight because he was the bigger man. That's, that's inaccurate and a, and a gross oversimplification. But Weidman fought to the fact that he was the bigger man. He used that to his advantage. And he did that by forcing Kelvin into wrestling and grappling exchanges. I don't think Michael Bisbing will do that. I mean, Bisbing is the bigger man in this fight. Because Kelvin Gastelum is, at best, a small middleweight. And there's a very real argument to be made that, based on his physicality, he's not a middleweight. But, for whatever reason, he couldn't get his crap together in terms of making weight at welterweight. So, this is the situation we find ourselves in. Oh, it's the Association of Boxing Commissions. Okay. I I may have misspoke. when The Association of Boxing Commissions is... The organ, the association of all the individual uh, commissions across the states, and I think part of you know, parts of Canada, I think a few places in Europe, like they're all just part of that association. I may have said it like the American Boxing Commission, like I, so I misspoke. So it's the Association of Boxing Commissions. I knew it was ABC, but I wasn't entirely sure about what the A stood for. Um, anyway, I just. <sighs> So soon after taking that kind of damage with Bisb- from Bisbing, Bisbing is Bisbing's a, you know, I he's a good fighter. Like that really does need to be noted. He's a good fighter, but he's not going to wear out Kelvin Gastelum with the same strategy that Chris Weidman did. He's not going to force those grappling exchanges and really wear on him. He's going to engage in striking with him. And Bisbing's a good striker, got a good jab, uh, but you know he's got a good left, you know he's got a good left high kick. I mean, like, Bisbing's a good striker. Like I don't, I don't want to sell him short, but I think he's slower of hand. I think he's slower. He might be slower of foot. I mean, Kelvin, Kelvin's foot speed is, is a real up-and-down thing. Like, sometimes it's great, sometimes it's not so good. But he's got decent footwork. I just, I really am not sure about Bisbing's chances here. They're go- these two are going to engage, and I think he's going to wind up on the receiving end of some powerful punches, and I think he's a little compromised. I mean, his chin has always been good. I mean, Bisbing's only been stopped... How many times has he actually been stopped with strikes? Belfort and uh, Henderson. That's it. He's only been stopped twice with strikes. He's only been submitted twice. Like, 
So it's not that his chin is bad, but that soon after getting bludgeoned the way he did. That's again, that's troubling. The fact that Kelvin is an accurate, strong, fast puncher, I find troubling. And the fact that Michael Bisping doesn't really have a plan B here. If the striking goes badly for him, I'm not sure he's going to be able to out-wrestle Kelvin Gastelum. Uh, yeah. I got Gastelum probably via finish. Uh, sometime before the fifth round. Somewhere like, like rounds three and four seem about right for me. Um, yeah, I just, I think Kelvin Gastelum takes this. But if he doesn't, because he's coming off of that loss to Weidman, he really should consider finding the appropriate way to cut to welterweight, because that's more where his... All his mass is like through the torso. He's thick through the ribs and hips. But he's not very tall, and he's not very you know, broad of shoulder. He's not very... Again, he's... In terms of height and, you know, reach and whatnot, uh, welterweight is more where he's kind of supposed to be, but you really do have to make weight consistently, otherwise it's an exercise in futility. Uh, All right, next up we have the leech, Li Jingliang. I never know what to make of this guy. Um, he's, He's a good... He's a pretty good fighter. He's coming up, He's on a three-fight winning streak. Um, he's only lost twice in the UFC. He had a split decision to Nordin Taleb that could have gone his way. Then he uh, got choked out by Kieda Nakamura. Gave up his back. and After he dominated the first two rounds, he just gave up his back in the third, and Nakamura's a veteran who's good at that position. Anyway, he's coming off of, again, three wins. His last two fights have been fight of the night. He's fighting Zach Otto. Do I remember about Zach Otto? Beat Kichi Kunimoto, lost to Sergio Moraes. He beat Josh Berkman. Jeez, he only fought Berkman to a split decision? I need to see this guy's face. <laughs> Hang on. If he's who I think he is... I remember, I loosely remember those fights, but I need a visual. All right, help me out. UFC website. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He is who I thought he is. That's a t- that's. I'll go with Legion Leo. Ah, why not? They're they're kind of trying to set up the you know the native because Jing Leong is Chinese to beat Auto. I won't be surprised if Otto wins, but that there's some pretty clear booking decisions that were made with regards to this fight. Um, next up, we have Wang Guan versus Alex Caceres. I believe this is Guan's UFC debut. Um, let's see. Do we know anything about Guan? 16-1-1. One one. It's a solid record. Uh, that's a real solid record. But I have no real frame of reference for him beyond, again, his stated record. I mean, he could have beat up a bunch of guys who just aren't very good. And Alex Caceres, uh, coming off of that 
win over Rolando D. Odd stoppage. Like, I didn't hate it, but it was a little odd. He lost two before that to Rodriguez and then Jason Knight. I'll go with Caceres. He's a, it's really hard to get a feel for Alex Caceres because he sometimes overperforms and then sometimes just like doesn't even show up. It's, it's really hard to get a read on him. Um, and kicking off our main card, I have actually been looking forward to this one. This guy in particular, Muslim Solikov. If you are unfamiliar with this gentleman, and I imagine you are, unless you're a really hardcore fan, like you've, you've got to be pretty hardcore to know why I'm excited about this. Um, he has... He had some, uh, some fights in M1. He's 12 and one overall. Here's why I'm excited about him. I haven't, I've seen, uh, I think his last one, I think I did. I think I did watch his last two fights. Uh, there were wins over Melvin Giard and Yvonne George. I think I took the time to look them up after I saw highlights of the finish. This guy is like, he, I believe some people, you know, again, a lot more hardcore fans than I am. Uh, refer to him as the god of spinning shit. Uh, his last... He, he finished Melvin Gillard with a spinning hook kick, which is an impressive thing to pull off if you've never actually tried it. He finished Ivan George with a spinning back kick. Uh, he submitted the guy before that, and he knocked out the guy before that with a spinning back kick. The guy before that was a spinning back kick and punches. He's only been the distance once. This guy's a finish machine, and he spin. He he throws a lot of spinning techniques. He's a multiple-time world championship in uh, Wushu Sanda, which is a weird. It's not a. It's a really interesting discipline. But again, world finishing. Uh, he's again world champion multiple times is certainly nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, he won gold in 05, 07, 09, 11, and 15. He took silver in 13. Between 80 and 85 kilograms. Uh, he has a, he's a decorated kickboxer. I'm going to assume this is right, because there are some kickboxers who just have, like, stupid records. You can just fight all the time. But I bel- according to, you know... Elements of what I can find, his kickboxing his kickboxing record is really impressive. Uh, it's like 76 and 13. I'd re- I really have to find a better source on this, but yeah, he's so... Again, if I am loosely familiar with this gentleman, and I am looking forward to his UFC debut. He's fighting Alex Garcia. Uh, Garcia's coming off of that loss to Tim Means. Garcia's a powerful puncher. But he fades, and he's got a low activity style, I, which I think is going to bite him here. I'm looking forward to Salikov putting on a show. Um, on Fight Pass, actually the fight, uh, apart from Salikov's debut, the return of Zabit Magomed Sharipov, who impressed me a lot when he beat Mike Santiago. Uh, and again... Uh, a lot more hardcore fans than I am had kind of mentioned before his debut there that he was really somebody to pay attention to. 
I found a few of his other fights. Um, those of you who don't know, like ACB, which is, I believe, Absolute Combat Bukaret, or Berkut, I forget the B there. But the, the ACB promotion has all their stuff on YouTube. Like they have a YouTube channel. Um, I don't know if they always have English commentary, but they have some good fights. And I looked up some of his stuff and after the really impressive performance against Santiago. I, I'm looking forward to seeing more of him. He's fighting. I'm going with Shaman because if it's Shaman, I'm just like, I don't know what I'll do. Like, yeah. He's fighting, uh, again, Shimon Morris. Morais? I'll go with Morais. Uh, I think Magomed... I have no problem picking Magomed Sharipov here in the dark, because I don't know too much about Mar- this Morais. Um, at welterweight, we have Kenan Song versus Bobby Nash. Bobby Nash is 0-2 in the UFC. He's been knocked out by Li Jing Leong and Danny Roberts. Needs a win. Um, I believe Song is... Well, the UFC's website is just like not all that useful in, in some cases, like this one. Um. Oh. Yep. Yeah. The the first fight pass prelim. I just confirmed this. We'll start at one forty five a.m. my time. That could be worse. That's all I'm saying. Uh. Yeah. I'll go. I. I'll go with Nash. That's just based on me having seen him fight. Um, Kylan Curran is desperately trying to... <laughs> She's... Oh! <laughs> Kylan Curran's UFC record is 1-5. and five. She lost to Paige Van Zandt, lost to Alex Chambers, beat Emily Kagan, lost to Felice Herrig, lost to Jamie Moyle, and lost to Alexandra Albu. Why is she still there? She's fighting Jan... Oh, Shaunan? I think that's pronounced Shaunan. I'll go with Shaunan. I just, like, I can't pick Kylan Curry at this point. At Bantamweight, we have two debutantes in Ping Yuan Lu. Lu? I'll go with Lu. Ping Ping Yuan Lu and Baharat Kondair? There's no way that's Kondair. Ah, I'll go with Kendare until I hear it pronounced. Otherwise, I don't know anything about either of these gentlemen. I'll go with Lou. There's a heavyweight bout because this card... There's two heavyweight bouts because this card isn't designed to punish me enough. Um, Chase Sherman will fight Abdil... Uh, excuse me, Shamil Abdurahimov. Uh, Sherman's won his last two, but... I'll go with Abdurahimov. I'd I just don't think either of these guys are all that good. I'm at win at women's bantamweight. Um, Yanan Wu will fight Gina Mazzani. Uh, Mazzani fought Sarah McMahon on really short notice. I've actually seen Mazzani. Yeah, I'll go with Mazzani. Just, I haven't seen Wu. Um, at featherweight, Wuliji Buran. Alrighty, I'll go with that. Uh, we'll fight Rolando D. I think D finally gets his UFC win here. And at heavyweight, Cyril Asker fights no one yet. 
Um, he was supposed to fight James Mulheron, but Mulheron failed an out-of-competition drug test. Uh, that was only nine. That was only nine days ago. So potential violation. I don't think we've really confirmed that one yet. So they're hoping someone steps up between now and then to fight Asker. If we lose a crappy heavyweight fight from the card, I will celebrate rather than cry. Alrighty. Uh, anyway, so starting at 1.30 a.m. my time, uh, 12.30 Pacific, yeah, it's like 4.30 Eastern. I want to double-check that. Hang on. I want to make sure that I have this right. I mean, I was just looking at it, but... Like, UFC fight, UFC's Fight Pass page is actually better about having accurate information than the UFC's main page. So I want to confirm this real quick. Uh, fight Pass, yes. Okay, this is 3.45 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, so minus two hours for me because I'm mountain. Yeah, 1.45, 1.30 to 1.45, somewhere in there. Are we seriously having, like, a bunch of debutantes here? This might just be the UFC's inaccurate information, but, eh, whatever. I assume that will be updated, like, they just don't have the... Yeah, they just haven't updated it. Like, the UFC sucks about updating their website. In terms of, like, factual information that is relevant to people who do kind of what I do. They, they're just not very good at it. Anyway, so, yeah, starting at 1.45 a.m. my time... Uh, there will actually be a relative, that's like a mid-morning card for people in like the UK. They're all laughing at us whining about it because they suffer with this every freaking week. So if anyone does happen to be up at that time, I will have coverage in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania. So stop by, say hello. I appreciate it. Um, we will... I really hope... Uh... Again, there's a couple of decent fights there that, get, uh, that I'm kind of looking forward to, but there could be a lot of uh, a lot of detritus to wade through. I hope I'm wrong. Genuinely do. Because uh, I, I just want a good night of fights. That's really all I want. All right, as for news, I kind of talked about the Verdum and Covington incident, which is just, like, sad and hilarious in equal parts. Uh, the UFC announced... A title fight for UFC 219. They have not confirmed that this is the main event, but they actually have to start selling tickets for this thing. Because it happens in, you know, a month. Actually a month? 219? December 30th? Yeah, like... You got like five weeks. Like, less than that. <laughs> five weeks or so. To start selling this thing. And at the moment they have announced, yeah, this is your main event, but... I imagine if they sign the other fight they're talking about between now and then, that will become the main event. Uh, they announced for the women's featherweight title, champion Chris Cyborg versus Holly Holm, former bantamweight champion. And I maintain Holly should have beaten Jermaine Durand to me, but such is life. I mean, it's another shot at the belt because Durand to me just like wouldn't actually defend it. And then suffered another hand injury. Um, I hope this fight holds together. I really like this fight. There's a lot of questions that will be answered about both women, actually. 
Cyborg's kind of used to just overwhelming her opponents with power and striking when they're really out of their depth. Holly's an elite-level striker. I don't think she, she could easily start picking off Cyborg as Cyborg's trying to close distance. Uh, Cyborg's the superior grappler. She could well force the clinch and get this thing to the mat and work over Holly from top position. Like There's, there's a lot of ways this could go. I I really do like this fight, and I hope it holds together. They're still waiting on a replacement for Jimmy Rivera's opponent, because it was supposed to be Cruz, and then Cruz broke his arm. Uh, that fight, ha- that event has some good fights. Uh, you have Nurmaga Madoff and Barboza. Uh, Jury and Rick Glenn's not a bad fight. You've got, I mean, Carlos Condit returning against Neil Magny. Look, and Khalil Roundtree Jr. versus Gokan Saki is guaranteed to have one of those guys unconscious by the end of that fight. Like, neither of those two knows how to fight other than put the other guy to sleep. Um, I don't think I don't think Roundtree's ever been the distance. Okay, twice. Um, once when he was fighting in the RFA, he won a decision, and then he lost the. Ultimate Fighter to Andrew Sanchez, the unanimous decision, when he just couldn't do anything about the takedowns. But other than that, he was finished by Tyson Pedro, and then his two last wins have been via knockout. And his other... He won his first fight by decision, too. But it, recently, it's just... Again, these guys are both finishers. That's just kind of what they do. So that'll be... That'll be fun. Like, one of those guys is going down. <laughs> And Condit back's always a good thing. He and Neil Magny, there's some interesting things that could happen there. So anyway, 219's a decent card. But yeah, they needed a main event. And the other fight that's kind of been talked about is a welterweight title fight between Tyron Woodley and Nate Diaz. I, I cannot tell you how much I hate that fight. I just... On merit... Nate Diaz should not be fighting for the belt. Nate Diaz's career record at welterweight is three and three. Might be six and six. I think it's only three, like, or four and four. The the point being, he's a 500 fighter at welterweight, and he never beat an elite level welterweight. And I mean, and two of those two of those welterweight bouts were against Conor McGregor, which was just aberrant. It's just random aberrations to the data. It doesn't actually help. I am mad... Again, that isn't officially signed. Tyron Woodley says he has signed to fight, but Nate Diaz hasn't. I know why the UFC is trying to make that fight. You have to sell pay-per-views, and much as Nate Diaz versus Woodley has no athletic merit because there are legitimate welterweight contenders, you do still have to actually sell the fight. And let's face it, Tyron Woodley's last two title defenses haven't been good. In fact, they are... The Maya title defense, I believe, is the worst title fight I have seen in a major MMA promotion. I legitimately seem to recall thinking at the time that was worse than uh, the first Carvalho versus... Um, oh, why am I blanking on this guy's name? 
which is impressive because he's a middleweight. Mark Hunt is Mark Hunt. Uh, I'm going to have to look up his name now. I know someone out there is yelling it at me, but... Manhof. That's it. Melvin Manhof. Yeah. Because, th- th- w- like, if you just want to see how bad MMA can be, uh, the first title fight between Melvin Manhof and Rafael Carvalho from Bellator 155 was, again, maybe one of the worst fights ever. And I recall thinking that Damian Maia versus Tyron Woodley was worse than that. Now, that might be subject to individual preference. And I might, Lord help me, I might have to rewatch them and actually decide if I believe that to be an accurate assessment. But, yeah, and the one before that was the rematch with Wonderboy, which wasn't a good fight. I mean, their first fight, I, I said this before, people view that with rose-colored glasses. Like, Tyron Woodley's title reign interests me the same way I hate to say a car crash interests me because that's like that's overly morbid. I I view it more as like a farce. Like I just want to see how bad this thing can get because it's only been going downhill since he won the belt. Knocks out Robbie Lawler in the first round. Fights Stephen Thompson in a fight that had some moments of drama, despite the action being relatively lackluster. But people remember it fondly for the drama. Fights to a draw. Rematches Stephen Thompson in what was at the time probably the worst welterweight title fight in UFC history. Certainly that I can remember. Then his next fight, he fights Damian Maya and somehow one-ups that in terms of just you know, worst fights. I genuinely want, I'm like, again, have this morbid curiosity about just how bad that can get. But you, So in order to, from a promotional standpoint reduce the effect of, boy, this guy's fights suck. Here's Nate Diaz. Nate Diaz doesn't have bad fights. Well, that's not true. Like, I didn't care for either McGregor fight. And I know, I know I'm in the minority there. I know it. uh, I know there are people out there who really like those fights, and God bless you. I am not saying you were wrong. I'm saying I watched those fights and did not care one bit. In either of them. And I covered both of them. I remember, because I vividly remember, like, in the course of their rematch, like, people on Twitter and whatnot react like, this fight is great. I love this. And I'm just like, I was watching it just kind of like completely nonplussed by the whole thing. But individual tastes may vary. And again, that being said, Nate Diaz has generally engaging fights. I do not think he has much of a chance against Woodley. I wouldn't, like, there's an outside chance he could win if Woodley gasses out or gets really sloppy on top, but, like, Nate's not a truly elite-level middleweight. And Tyron Woodley is. Excuse me, welterweight. No, he's really not an elite-level middleweight, but as a welterweight, Nate Diaz is a middle-of-the-pack guy, not a title contender. Tyron Woodley is, at the moment, the best welterweight in the world, despite his fight sucking out loud. So, again, there, I imagine that fight will get made, but, again, I, I, I do not care for that. I know why they're doing it. I accept why they're doing it. If it gets signed, I will know why everyone did it. I won't like it. 
But that's my lot in life. There are things that I like that other people don't, and there are things that I don't like that other people do. I can live and let live, as far as that goes. Um, all right. Oh, yeah, the other news. <laughs> Broke earlier today. Light heavyweight contender, possible title contender. He had a fight lined up, as I recall. Vulcan Uzdemir, arrested in Florida for, I believe, aggravated battery. At least that's what I saw. That division cannot catch a break. Um, again, MMA is... When it's good, it's a great sport. When it's bad, it's awful. And then there's the weirdness. There might be more public weirdness around this sport than any other. And I might be wrong about that. I don't follow other sports all that closely, but there's a level of institutional and individual insanity in MMA that is baffling and intriguing. Again, I don't, I don't know the last time I read a story about someone hitting another human, about a human being smacking another human being in the face with a boomerang. But I got that. I got that over the last couple of days from MMA because it's a weird sport. That's really all it is. Um, all right. Was there any other major news? Let me double check. Um, UFC 218 is coming up. Have we announced anything? Nothing has fallen apart from Swanson versus Ortega. Lawler versus Dos Anjos is coming up. Alamis lost his opponent. Yeah, he was supposed to fight Aldo, and Aldo got bumped up to the title fight. So looking for a replacement for him. That, fight, that event has Santiago Ponzinibbio and Mike Perry. And Glover Teixeira versus Misha Serkinov. That's a pretty solid main card for Fox. But again, nothing has really fallen apart. 219 had a few announcements. Have we announced anything for 220? Not really. Nothing of real value. They've announced a few fights. Yeah, yeah, no, this is the one. They were like talking about Uzdemir versus Cormier for that as the main event for that for the belt. Now he's in jail. He's been arrested. Bear in mind he might still fight for the belt. Like I won't be shocked if that happens, but Ugh. Light heavyweight is such a wasteland. All right, I think that's everything I have to really touch on here. So uh, thank you all very much for being here, for listening to the ramblings of me. Uh, quick check over on Twitter. Nope, nothing new there. All right, so that's it for me. Thanks to everyone who, again, read last night's coverage. Seven hours. Seven hours. I mean, even Larry Zonka, like, expressed sympathy for my suffering. And for those of you who don't know, like, Larry Zonka covers wrestling for 411. And he's been known to cover those marathon Japanese events live, which is like some unholy hour here in the States. It's like, all right, 1.30 in the morning and Wrestle Kingdom 26 is about to start. Like, I, I don't know how he does it. And I think he's suffering through Survivor Series at the moment. So if you're listening live, go to the Wrestling Zone of 411 Mania. Find, uh, and I, I don't know, I don't know if he's actually doing the live coverage or if he's just preparing, you know, his report after the fact. Uh, 
If he's doing the coverage, express some sympathy for Larry. If he just posts his report, also express some sympathy and appreciation for the work the man does. He gets too much crap. And he, again, he, like, covers everything. He covers Lucha Underground. He covers WWE. He covers whatever TNA is going by nowadays. He covers a lot of Japanese stuff. Just... Uh, again, the, the man deserves some more support. And again, so like even someone who knows the suffering of the marathon sessions, like yeah, that was rough. <laughs> um, thanks to, again, thank you to those who commented and who read and followed along. Always appreciate you guys, um, especially since I know how many other places you can go for this. So thank you. Um, all right, and again, Saturday live coverage of Fight Night 122 at. Ugh. Way too early in the morning. Uh, this Tuesday, you can listen to myself and Mark Radlich review Justice League. <laughs> oh, this is going to be fun. See, Mark has linked me what? Mark, for those of you who don't know, like the bit at the end where we talk about how much critics suck at their jobs. That's always, that's done cold. Like Mark finds those in advance. And I don't, he does not share them with me. Like, occasionally I will get one or two, like, one that he's just like, this is so bad, I, I need another human to share in my suffering. But normally that's just cold. I don't prepare my reactions ahead of time. None of that is scripted. We do not have a writer's room. But every now and then he will just say, like, hey, by the way, this is what we're getting into and give me an example. He showed me one of the result, one of the, uh, again, one of the blurbs from a critical analysis of Justice League, and it was – it's the like film equivalent of Trump's presidency and Brexit, at which point I just like – I have things to say about that. But that's kind of what we're in for. He's seen the movie. I haven't. Um, the only thing Mark warned me about it was that he thought the CGI was bad. We all know that my threshold for bad CGI is much different from Mark's. Like, I hate bad CGI with a passion. And if Mark thought it was bad, it's probably bad. So, Tuesday, he and I will review that. Uh, I believe Jeff has a review of that in the Movies and TV Zone of 411 Mania. So, if you want his thoughts, and you should read them, because Jeff does a good job. Uh, go over to there and give that a read. Uh, I don't know if he has the review of Coco that's coming out but I believe that's the next major movie. Uh, he has an interview in the M- Jeff has an interview in the MMA zone with Uriah Faber, which is worth a read, whether you subscribe to my worldview of Faber or not. Uh, again, it's well done. So give that a read. That's uh, some interesting stuff there. And we'll be back next week. We will review fight night One Twenty Two, And I want to double check the timing on this. 25th, December 1st is not you. 26th, yeah, we will be previewing the Tough 26 finale. They've only announced a few fights. I mean, they're going to crown the first ever women's flyweight champion, and I imagine it will be Barb Honchak, as Barb's the best fighter on that show. And I imagine that whoever wins the belt will subsequently FedEx it to Valentina Shevchenko, because seriously, Shevchenko's she should be bantamweight champion, much less her natural weight class, which is flyweight. 
They've also announced, oh, good grief, Andrew Sanchez and Ryan James. I hate life. Uh, Joe Soto and Brett Johns isn't bad. Uh, there again, there's a lot on that card that still has to be fleshed out. But uh, tough finales are always rough. Seriously, why can't we have Gaethje and Alvarez on that card? At the moment, it's scheduled for UFC 218, and that's a great fight. But I think it deserves five rounds. I don't think it'll go five rounds. But I hate the thought of that go only going three. That's a great fight, though. I really like H's chances. So we'll preview that event, and hopefully more fights will be announced by then. As it, as it stands, there's, a, there's not a lot there. But that will be next week. All right. Thank you, everyone, again for listening. Thank you for sharing the show. If you have friends that are into the sport, point them in my direction. I'm happy to try and win them over. Until next time. Thanks, everybody. Please stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.